Okay, I think we're we're all set here. So um, if anybody has any questions along the way, don't hesitate to type those into the chat. Um, I think I'll see the notification pop up and I'll just answer things along the way. So I think I'll probably be around 20 minutes or so with the content that I have in the slides, uh, just the things that I'm excited about in practice right now. And um, and then we'll have uh, time for Q&A afterwards. Uh, but again, if there's questions along the way, don't hesitate to uh, plug those into the chat and I'll answer them as we go along. Um, I am in a uh, lovely little town in southwestern Ontario right now, and uh, the internet connection's okay, but not amazing. So in the event that anything's choppy, um, this will be recorded and I'll, I'll post it on uh, YouTube and on all the podcast platforms and everything as a um, a podcast episode. So um, hopefully everything will behave well uh, tech-wise. So uh, thank you for uh, to those of you who are attending live right now. I appreciate uh, your your interest and uh, for anyone who's listening after the fact, I appreciate your interest as well. Um, I was um, excited to put this together because there's many things that I'm excited about in practice, but um, just having a chance to talk about a few of them uh, today specifically, I'm looking forward to that. Um, this, uh, the, the, the kind of body of the PowerPoint, I, so the first thing I'm going to talk about is um, that I've uh, been excited about the research literature and the clinical results that I've been seeing in folks where we've been working on in, um, optimizing muscle mass. Um, and I gave a presentation at a conference, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, and it was all about um, things that can be done to um, improve a person's, uh, not only their lifespan, but their health span as well. Um, so lifespan, of course, is how long you're alive for um, before you're no longer alive. Um, health span is how long you feel objectively healthy for before you describe yourself as being unhealthier on the more infirm end of the spectrum. So of course, we'd ideally like to have the longest um, health span and you know, within reason, a good long lifespan as well. Um, and so uh, th these are slides that were extrapolated from that. Um, it's not the full presentation, although as I was going through, as I was going through it and figuring out which slides I wanted to include, I thought it would just be fun to give this presentation again, because it's really fascinating. So um, I might uh, do a future um, presentation of it uh, for folks if they're interested in that. Um, it's a little, it's a little heady and it's all about mitochondria, but anyways, I, th I think it's pretty fascinating stuff. So I was kind of disappointed. I couldn't give that presentation again, cause it was fun to put together and fun to deliver it a few years ago. Um, so the slides have been kind of just, um, uh, taken from that presentation. So some of the slides are, you know, way more detailed, um, and getting into the research literature in a deeper way than I would normally get into for a kind of just general presentation. Um, but I'll just kind of, uh, give the, um, the, uh, layperson overview. And if you're, um, you know, um, interested in going into more detail, the references are there and all that stuff, and you can geek out as much as you so choose. Um, just a quick, um, kind of, uh, um, well, disclaimer is not the word. I just saw the word disclaimer, but uh, anyways, a quick overview. Um, one of the things that I, I'm really mindful about when I talk about optimizing muscle mass is the fact that um, many of my patients, and I think many of the folks who are interested in you know listening to podcast episodes about overcoming chronic illness, um, they they um, can have a really hard time doing the kind of activity that would help to improve or optimize their muscle mass. And I'm I'm very very um, sensitive to that fact and aware of that fact. Um, <clears throat> The reason that I wanted to talk about this is because in patients that I work with who are 
already generally healthy and we're working on optimizing their health, muscle mass optimization can be really important. Um, patients who are uh, have been dealing with complex chronic illness, but they are say 50 plus percent of the way better. Um, this is something that they can oftentimes get into um, at that stage of their healing process. And it can really help to propel them faster to the finish line of feeling hundred percent better. And then for folks who are you know, still in the early stages of their healing process, or maybe they've been working to get better for some time, but they have complicated issues. They're very sensitive to things. They just have really extra, extra complex cases. Um, and they're, they're, you know, just at the very early stages of, of, you know, they're like 1% better or less than 10% better or whatnot, or like on their way to feeling hundred percent. Um, this can still be helpful too. And I've actually had a few cases now, not dozens and dozens, but a handful of cases where, you know, try as we might, like we just we're having a heck of a time getting um, much traction with the patient case. And um, the patient was willing to, you know, say either work with a physiotherapist or occupational therapist or someone where they started implementing a um, strength um, in enhancing protocol, like a muscle mass enhancing protocol. And, and it was, you know, slow and, and, arduous, maybe arduous is a strong word, but uh, it was, you know, sort of a, a not super, super quick process. But as they started doing that, they were getting stronger and that actually propelled them into feeling better because when we have more, and so that kind of hit, um, got the momentum going where then we were able to build on that protocol. So um, I, certainly this doesn't apply to every single case out there, but um, it could theoretically apply to any stage of a person's, um, uh, to any stage where a person is on their, on their health path. Um, so anyways, so, uh, little, little background there. So in terms of the actual, uh, oh, I guess it was disclosure and not disclaimer and should have changed it to disclaimer. Um, I always, um, talk about my disclosures when I speak, um, uh, in a professional setting at conferences and it's always, I have no disclosures because I have no financial ties to any companies or, or this or that. But, uh, anyways, my disclaimer, like I have on all of my videos and podcast episodes is, uh, the content of this presentation is for informational purposes only. Um, it should not be construed as medical advice. If you need medical advice, please speak to your healthcare provider to obtain that advice. I can say that in my sleep. I said it so many times on all my videos. Um, I, I included, I kept uh, my bio slides um, in here, or just just this one bio slide actually in here. Just uh, I know some folks who listen to the podcast um, are. I, I don't really talk about myself in the podcast because it's about interviewing other uh, clinicians. But if you've been listening to the podcast and you're like, who who the heck is this guy that talks to all these amazing doctors that are out there? Um, so I practice in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I graduated uh, about. 15 years ago from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Ontario. Um, and uh, my practice primarily focuses on chronic infections like Lyme and co-infections, uh, mold illness, uh, chronic pain issues, integrative oncology, which I don't really talk about in my videos and whatnot, but I've treated several hundred patients with cancer diagnoses over the course of time in conjunction with their uh, oncologist and other parts of the uh, members of the healthcare team. I've treated um, hundreds of children on the autism spectrum, uh, many children with pandas or pans, which is this um, pediatric condition that if you don't know what it is, that's that's okay. Uh, but if you do know what it is, it's uh, yeah, really important to, to know how to treat that. Uh, neurological disorders like MS, um, Alzheimer's, ALS, things like that. And then basically anything that's chronic or treatment resistant. Um, I treat a lot of chronic digestive issues as well, which I sometimes put that in my bio too, like SIBO and LIBO and yeast overgrowth and things like that. Um, I kept this lecture line slide largely because I was just so darn excited about going over these lecture slides again. And um, if there is interest in uh, kind of hearing the, the the full lecture about, you know, more about mitochondria and optimizing health span and lifespan, um, pop me off an email, let me know, um, and I'd be happy to do this if, if there's interest. 
Um, so the um, kind of the, the full lecture that I gave at the conference a few years ago um, covered all these different topics, um, and uh, yeah, kind of looking into this concept of um, inflammaging, uh, which is sounds like a silly word because it kind of is, but I, I didn't coin it, but it's the uh, link between chronic inflammation and um, sort of expediting the aging process or, and, and when people talk about um, anti-aging medicine and, and things like that, it, it's a little bit of a funny term because of course, aging is just a function of time. You can't change that, at least not to my knowledge. Um, but it's really more about like, you know, feeling uh, like a person is um, biologically older than their chronological age, essentially. So kind of uh, making a person feel, yeah. Um, like they're, I don't know, 20 years older than they are. But that being said, some folks, uh, I treat 60 year olds that are healthy, they're healthier than some of my 30 year olds. So, uh, aging is just, or age is just one, one factor to consider, but uh, inflammaging is, um, essentially this term that speaks to the impact of chronic inflammation on sort of, um, uh, leading to a deleterious health outcomes, basically, uh, DAMPS is an acronym for damage associated molecular patterns, which is, um, something that's associated with, um, uh, poor mitochondrial function can lead to more of this process happening. And that can kind of, uh, exacerbate the cellular aging process, shall we say, um, inflammasome activation, mitophagy, which we'll talk about in a couple of slides coming up here. Mitophagy is just being that process whereby old mitochondria are broken down, um, and their contents are recycled. And generally, um, we want to make sure that there's adequate mitophagy happening. Otherwise there's negative health outcomes that arise and then the role of mitochondrial DNA. And then I talk about my comprehensive mitochondrial support and a case study and some resources. So anyways, um, just that's a future talk that I could give again, if folks are interested, um, just a quick note about mitochondria. Again, I should have called these slides more cause I know I need to keep it to about 20 minutes here, but, uh, just, just so fascinating. Um, you know, why, why do we, why should we care about mitochondria? Well, and how does mitochondria relate to enhancing muscle mass? Well, when we have more muscle mass, if a person, you know, say puts on, you know, two to 10 pounds of muscle mass, shall we say, um, then those muscles are filled with mitochondria as we'll see on the slides coming up, uh, muscles and mitochondria really go, go hand in hand. Um, and so when there are more mitochondria in the first place, the cells, the body can make more energy to begin with the metabolisms enhanced overall. And we see these, uh, as we'll see in the slides come up here, these significant health benefits, um, mitochondria make all of the, virtually all of the ATP for ourselves. It's really about 90% of all our ATP. Um, ATP being our cellular energy, and we need energy to run virtually all the functions in the cells of our body. So as it says there at the top, ATP makes the world go around. Um, it makes our physiology function. Um, the average person makes um, around between 24 to 60 kilograms of ATP per day. It's estimated that folks make about one um, uh, pound of ATP per pound of their, uh, between half to one pound of ATP per um, pound of their own body weight. So just like, wow, we make a lot of energy for us to run properly. Um, some tissues are up to 42% mitochondria by weight. So you picture like way back in biology class, you know, picture of a cell it's filled with, you know, there's the nucleus and the endoplasmic reticulum and the lysosomes, um, lysosomes and all these different things. And then there'll be like, you know, one or two little token mitochondria in there. Well, some cells it's literally that picture is like, should be almost half full of mitochondria. Um, and, uh, yeah, as it says there near the bottom, mitochondrial dysfunction is a feature of virtually every chronic disease. So that's going to impact our health span. So like, Oh, my mitochondria aren't working optimally. I have lower than optimal levels because maybe my muscle mass isn't where it ideally should be. Well, then you're going to be more prone to chronic illness and that's going to impact your health span. You know, how long am I alive for before I start to feel unhealthy or infirm? 
Um, and then the final um, note there is mitochondrial dysfunction appears to affect um, aging and um, ultimately our, our lifespan. So super, super important. Um, just a couple little slides here. And then yeah, just indulge me for couple, one, one more minute, just so I can show these uh, very exciting slides about mitochondrial fun facts. Um, if you look at the highlighted areas, it's basically showing the uh, percentage of the entire cell volume that's occupied by mitochondria. So we see there at the top, the liver liver cells, you know, 27.5% uh, of your hepatocytes, your liver cells are filled with mitochondria. It's like, wow, how fascinating is that? We talk about how important the liver is for detoxifying things and whatnot, processing hormones, et cetera, et cetera, you know, making proteins and blood clotting factors and various things. Um, and well, those liver cells need a lot of energy to function properly. So when folks come into my practice and they're really tired, you know, it's like, okay, your cells aren't cranking out enough energy. Well, of course that's going to have a negative impact on the efficiency of your liver processes because they need energy to run. Yes. They need B vitamins. They need glutathione. They need conjugation factors like, you know, taurine and glucuronic acid, all these different things, but they actually also need the energy to run the engines as well. You know, a third of their volume, give or take, well, I guess. Okay. A little better than a quarter of their volume is made of a mitochondria. That's really notable. Um, same thing with the kidneys, you know, the second, um, highlighted area down there, um, about 38% of kidney volume, uh, kidney cell volume is mitochondria. So again, liver, kidney, super important for detox or for lots of other things too. Um, and then the heart, um, almost half of the volume of the heart is, um, is made up of mitochondria. So really, really relevant. Um, and then just a sort of similar but different chart here, looking at the overall amount of energy expenditure in the various tissues of the body. So what we looked at on the previous slide is when you take a given cell, you know, heart muscle cell, um, liver cell, what have you, what percentage of it is made up of mitochondria. But when you look at the overall energy expenditure for a person when they're at rest, so, you know, not when they're doing a calculus exam, not when they're running a marathon, but they're just kind of, you know, going about their, like they're just, they're just resting or just having like very light activity, shall we say, um, then about, uh, as it says there with the little parentheses, um, about 22% of all of our resting energy is, um, used up by our muscles. So more muscle means more energy expenditure means more energy production in the first place also means a higher metabolism as well. Uh, 21% by the liver and then 22% by the brain. So, you know, what are the tissues that are going to be the most impacted if our mitochondria aren't working optimally? It's the muscle the muscles, the liver, the brain, I mean, everything, but those, you know, pr proportionately more than others. So not a surprise that when our mitochondria are struggling, we feel tired, we get brain foggy, um, and then it's a little more in the background, but some of these important liver functions can also start to deplete as well. So um, I mentioned that this um, uh, process of mitophagy is really important. So again, we want the old mitochondria to be broken down and essentially recycled. Um, and if that process isn't happening because the body's just not getting the signals to do that, then it can lead to negative health outcomes. So we'll uh, just kind of gloss over some of these slides because, again, I just kind of cut and pasted them and kept in... Uh, yeah, all the more heady details here, but um, essentially if we look at the top um, quoted line there from this study that's referenced at the top, if anyone wants to look into this or fact check it or whatnot, these are all just direct quotes, um, but there's evidence that um, autophagy plays important roles in health lifespan and health span in mammals. So um, autophagy um, is um, sort of similar, but different to mitophagy. Uh, mitophagy is the breakdown and recycling of old mitochondria. Autophagy is the breakdown and recycling of entire cells, including the mitochondria um, contained within there. Um, and so 
the second uh, bullet point there basically says that when they do these um, mouse models, so they you know kind of delete certain genes and you know poor little critters living in living in labs and whatnot. But if they um, basically um, delete this key regulator of autophagy, um, which again kind of different but but very much related to mitophagy, um, so when they delete this gene in um, uh, in mice, then the uh, sorry my grandmother's air conditioning just kicked in. I hope it's not loud. It's a little buzzy here in the background here. When they um, basically interfere with that function of autophagy, then the mice that they do that in have severe muscle atrophy. So like, uh-oh, lower, lower muscle mass, not good. Uh, deterioration in neuromuscular junction. So interfering with the sort of overall functionality of those muscles, and then also a reduced lifespan, also not good. Um, and they also found that um, then when they were when there was this um, overexpression of that exact same gene, so in other words, like when they knock it out, um, less muscle mass and uh, reduce lifespan. When they start to overexpress it, so they kind of manipulate the genome of the mouse um, to have an overexpression of that gene. So there's more um, that sort of more optimal function of that autophagy. Then um, even when they did that in aged um, skeletal muscle fibers, then it actually restored the autophagy function and actually increased the um, integrity of those neuromuscular junctions and increased the myofiber size. So muscles got bigger. So just kind of speaking to the effect that um, regulating that autophagy related gene is very important and that autophagy and kind of mitophagy by extrapolation are, are important. Whoops, it easy. Um, and then so in, and then final bullet point there, I'm just indicating that when there are mutations in that gene, then it can have uh, cause neurodevelopmental disorders, um, including neurological, muscular, and endocrine hypofunction. Endocrine hypofunction, meaning um, suboptimal function of the hormonal systems in the body and, you know, how many folks with uh, whether they have complex chronic illness or not, by a certain point in time in their life, it's like, oh, I'm having issues with, um, you know, sex hormones, adrenal hormones, thyroid hormones, etc. So really, really important to uh, make sure that autophagy and mitophagy are working well. <clears throat> uh, just more um, evidence here uh, or um, information here. Oh my goodness, I guess I have a auto. <laughs> bullet point um, generation thing here happening. Okay, there we go. Now it's now it's behaving. Um, so in uh, um, C. Um, elegans, uh, earthworms, basically, when they inactivate autophagy, then there's a decreased lifespan for those worms. Um, similar with, um, with kind of the opposite with uh, Drosophilia, which are fruit flies. Um, when you promote autophagy, it extends their lifespan and just gonna basically just more more points kind of saying saying the same. Um, So, um, so here we're um, seeing that uh, from from this paper that um, the level of mitophagy. So, talking about mitophagy now more specifically than autophagy, but again, very much overlapped. Um, it declines over time um, during just the normal aging process. So, this is, to my understanding, one of the reasons why folks, you know, generally look and feel different when they're say, you know, in their sixties or seventies compared to when they're in their twenties or thirties. There is this normal sort of age age appropriate age expected decline in mito in, in mitophagy. Um, however, as we'll see coming up, there are things that can be done to um, sort of uh, slow that process or um, uh, or in, in some cases kind of reverse that process. Um, let's see here. Okay, uh, so essentially, um, if there's um, uh, suboptimal autophagy going on, then you're going to, a uh, person's going to develop more dysfunctional mitochondria, which are going to lead to Different issues. So um, it's like, oh, why why is mitophagy important? Why is autophagy important? Well, ultimately, we don't want that to lead to mitochondrial dysfunction, which 
talking at the start about how important mitochondria are for many different tissues. Um, just a little schematic here. It's nothing too earth shattering, but if we kind of follow the top and um, what should happen with a healthy mitochondria is when there's stress, um, which we'll talk about some of those stressors coming up, then um, that will lead to mitophagy and you remove the damaged uh, mitochondrion. So, um, and, and then um, it's recycled and, and things are good. Uh, whereas um, with the aging process, there's going to be this reduction of mitophagy. You're going to accumulate these damaged mitochondria, and then you're going to see elevated ROS, which are reactive oxygen species, also known as free radicals, also known as the opposites of antioxidants, decreased bioenergetics, i.e. not making as much energy on a cellular level, um, and then this increase in age-related pathology, like neurodegenerative conditions and things like that. So how can we encourage mitophagy? So ultimately, um, and I'll just kind of go through these slides a little bit uh, quick. I'll get all the notes up in case anyone wants to go back and, oh my goodness, it's a hair, hair trigger here on these slides. Um, so the, the gist of it is that exercise leads to, um, of course, increased muscle mass, but it also encourages autophagy um, as well. Um, another thing that can have an impact, I, this is a little bit off topic because uh, the, the thing I'm excited about is the uh, the um, building muscle mass, um, but uh, just thought I'd include this for the sake of completion. Um, calorie restriction is also something that's been shown to help enhance mitophagy. So uh, for anyone who listens to or reads um, information from folks um, who are you know biohackers um, or um, who talk about sort of like health span, lifespan optimization, um, it's probably not a surprise to hear like, oh, exercise is important. Oh, um, calorie restriction is important because we know that, um, overeating is, is not good. Um, but it turns out when we, um, intermittently uh, reduce calories, um, that is also something that has an overall health benefit because if we go back to the previous slide, that relatively simple diagram there, as it says at the top, you know, um, stress leads to mitophagy. Well, what are these stressors? Well, um, exercise is a stressor, of course, you know, or, um, well, depending on the exercise, if it's light enough intensity, maybe it's not really stressful at all. But if we're doing exercise that's going to lead to muscle building, you know, why do muscles build? We lift heavier things or, or do body weight exercise or whatever it is that puts strain on our muscles, we get these little micro tears in the muscle, which is why the muscle gets sore afterwards or hits a limit. And then the body heals it and it comes back stronger than before because the body realizes, oh, I guess we're lifting heavy circular metal discs or kettlebells or doing jump squats or whatever it is. Um, and so the body comes back stronger from that. So that stress could be um, exercise. Um, that stress could also be caloric restriction. So if the body sees that, oh, I, you know, I needed this many calories, but this person that I'm attached to is, is uh, intermittent fasting, well, then that stress is going to also um, activate some of these mitophagy and autophagy pathways as well. So uh, just a little reminder note that uh, calorie restriction is uh, something that will enhance mitophagy as well. And now, especially in folks who are dealing with complex chronic illnesses we um, or health issues, we do need to be really mindful, at least in my practice, I'm very mindful about when I recommend calorie restriction um, and, you know, folks sometimes hear calorie restriction, it's like, oh, like I'm going to do really intense intermittent fast or I'm going to do multiple day water fasts or whatnot, that can be a good fit for some folks, um, but sometimes it's a really, really bad fit. So when a person's body is already quite depleted, when there's already that um, impaired mitochondrial function happening, um, sometimes the body just does not have the resources to um, so kind of weather the storm of the calorie restriction and a person just feels you know more tired, more crummy. So um, it's something that definitely has to be, we have to be 
should be cautious with it in general, but especially if there are underlying chronic health issues going on. Okay, sorry, folks. I I, I included too many slides um, in here. I was I was too excited, um, but uh, I'm going to just skip through these here. Uh, and it's kind of just a note, basically saying that um, as folks, um, as part of the normal aging process, there tends to be this reduction in mitochondrial density. Um, but with exercise, um, one can um, mitigate or, or reverse that. Uh, just a note here, um, sarcopenia is um, this term that describes basically loss of muscle mass overall, like not just muscle shrinking, like, uh, like, oh, like I had these big beefy biceps and, you know, I haven't lifted weights in a while. And now they're, if they're no longer big beefy biceps, it's actually a loss of muscle tissue. And that's actually, um, as it says in uh, the slide and, and uh, maybe some subsequent slides here, um, that sarcopenia, that loss of muscle tissue is a big uh, predictor of folks having um, notable health issues. And it, it directly relates to a person's lifespan, um, where if we have more sarcopenia, it tends to lead to a shortened lifespan, which based on everything we've been talking about so far today makes a lot of sense because muscles slash mitochondria, very important. All right. Uh, and just the last point that's highlighted um, from this study. So the most efficient interventions to attenuate, uh, i.e. reduce sarcopenia, that muscle mass loss, um, are exercise training and calorie restriction, both well-known to improve mitochondrial health. And I always have this silly thought that like, oh, maybe my presentation won't use up the whole 20 minutes. So I better, you know, make sure I have some extra slides in there. So in the event that uh, we somehow magically uh, don't have enough uh, to talk or there's not enough to discuss during this presentation, I'll come back to this case report. Um, but uh, the, the punchline is that um, patient with chronic health issues felt a lot better after we got uh, some comprehensive mitochondrial support in, in the mix. But I'll, I'll circle back to this if it's... Uh, if there is time. Um, I included the re uh, learning resources slide here, um, just in case folks are interested in learning more about mitochondria. Um, one of my naturopathic colleagues, who I, who I don't know, um, it's you know funny that his name is Lino. I, I don't know, Dr. No. Um, I'm sure there's probably a funnier thing I could have said there, but anyways, uh, Dr. No, who I, I don't know personally, but uh, wrote this book called Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine. It's a really, really great book. Um, it, when I first started uh, becoming um, obsessed with mitochondria, it was one of the first books that I read. And it's just a really, really great overview of mitochondrial physiology and health, but like it, it's very much kind of written um, to like a general public level, but um, it still goes into like plenty of detail. I think it's just a really, really well-written book. So anyways, if you're interested, take, take a gander. Um, Dr. Sarah Myhill, she's a medical doctor. Um, I can't remember what the acronym MB stands for, but an MB in England, where she's from, um, is equivalent to an MD here. Um, and uh, so there's this book, uh, which I think is very, have a very clever title. Um, it, you know, the, the, the subtitle um, being it's mitochondria, not hypochondria, um, because it's a book all about chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, it's, I think, very, very well, uh, it's a very, very good title. Um, and so that's another book that's uh, written for the general public, but does get into like quite a lot of detail as well. Please don't go to consultdranderson.com because it's just um, continuing education courses for uh, for clinicians. Go there if you want to, but I think you have to be a clinician to register for the uh, webinars and all that. And anyways, Dr. Anderson's a brilliant guy. Uh, by all means, uh, consider following Dr. Anderson on Instagram. Uh, he's on uh, I think he has YouTube videos as well. Um, he's one of my mentors. He's been practicing for 40 plus years. He uh, is a 
specializes in complex chronic illnesses and in oncology actually. And so brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, and then there's this uh, review course, which is also for clinicians only by, by Dr. Walsh. So that's, that's the learning resources there. So um, I'm just going to take a quick sip here. Right. So the second thing that I am excited about in practice right now um, is something referred to as brain mapping and neurofeedback. So um, for anyone who may have listened to my interview with Dr. Jabin Moore, which I posted maybe a month or so ago, um, he's a chiropractor from Kansas City, Missouri. We talked about neurofeedback. And um, after that conversation, I just really got a, a bug in my ear, but like, I need to, I need to look into neurofeedback and brain mapping. Um, I had heard about neurofeedback and brain mapping years and years ago. I looked into it. It was very, very expensive back then to get set up with that. And it just wasn't an option for my practice at the time. Um, but after talking to Dr. Moore, um, I looked into it again. And while they're still not giving away the systems uh, that are out there, they are uh, markedly, some of them are markedly uh, better priced than they were once upon a time. Um, and so I recently taken the plunge in bringing in brain mapping and neurofeedback into my practice. Um, it's a about 50 hours of training. So I'm plugging my way through that and all of my, you know, non-existent free time, um, and a lot of, uh, you know, just practice scans and things like that. So I'm not using this in practice yet, but I wanted to talk about it because I've been, uh, yeah, very excited about it, excited to the point of bringing it into my practice. And so I thought I'd talk about that, um, uh, quickly here. So with brain mapping, um, uh, and thank you to Scottsdale neurofeedback for putting up this um, image, which there's the credit for this, uh, this image. Um, sure it's a lovely website. I just have the link there because I want to give credit for the image. Um, so with brain mapping, um, I'm hopefully my, my face isn't covering up the, the best part of the picture, which is the glorified shower cap that's on the, the little guy's head there. So I'll move that. I don't know if it'll make a difference in the actual recording or not. Um, but, uh, basically with brain mapping, um, person puts on a glorified shower cap, similar to what's depicted in the, um, picture there. Oh, something in the chat here. Oh, okay, great. Thank you for letting me know. You can see the cap. That's perfect. Um, so we put on this glorified shower cap, um, which is hooked up to uh, 19 um, electrodes, um, which read um, the person's brain waves. Um, so it reads the brain waves. It doesn't put any energy into the person's head. So there's no shocks or anything like that. It's just reading brain waves. And it's the exact same technology that's used to scan a person's brain to see if they're having seizure activity. It's just measuring brain waves. <clears throat> excuse me, but, um, the, uh, this type of, um, EEG is actually a quantitative EEG. So the quantitative EEG, um, is actually quantifying the amount of the different types of brain waves at the different regions in the brain. So, um, the computer software, which looks like he's watching a video or something like that. Um, not, uh, that's, uh, and then the other picture, uh, the other computer looks like it just has a, a lovely screensaver image there, but what we'd uh, be seeing if we were actually doing, um, a, a scan would be, um, just all the, uh, all these little, uh, kind of, kind of looks like an EKG, like, you know, if a person's getting their, um, uh, uh, like an EKG run on their, on their heart to see like how the, um, heart rhythm is doing and whatnot, kind of seeing like little wavy lines. We kind of have those for, um, all of the different, uh, wavelengths that the brain, um, can express. So the, de uh, Delta waves, theta waves, alpha waves, and beta waves. And so we'd be looking at that on the other screen and basically the computer software would be recording or quantifying all of those, um, brain waves. So at the, after doing the scan, which depending on the system that's being used takes anywhere from 
you know, say a couple of minutes to, you know, say 15 minutes, um, then the computer software essentially creates a brain map and it tells us, are there any um, areas of the brain that are overactive or underactive? And if we see that the areas of the brain that are underactive or overactive are correlated with um, the types of symptoms that the patient's experiencing, then we know, okay, there seems to be a brainwave imbalance that's related to their health concerns. And um, there's a subsequent treatment called neurofeedback that we could work with in a, in a targeted way. Um, <clears throat> the way that we see if there's that correlation is, you know, you have the brain map and the patient fills out some, uh, a few, a couple of questionnaires, just asking them about um, physical symptoms they're having, kind of any mental, emotional symptoms that they're having. And then the computer software kind of pairs that up essentially with the brain map. And then we see, oh, this person's having issues with insomnia. Um, and the part of their uh, brain map that would be associated with insomnia is also off kilter. So therefore, brainwave imbalances could very well help to explain why the patient's having issues with insomnia and rebalancing those brainwaves could lead to a improvement or resolution of the insomnia. Um, whereas if we saw that, oh, the patient's having migraines, but the migraine part of the brain map looks okay, then it would mean it would be quite unlikely that um, working on the brainwave rebalancing would have a positive impact on helping to improve or resolve those migraines. So uh, with uh, neurofeedback, uh, so neurofeedback being the training or the um, uh, the treatment for that, um, if there are these brainwave imbalances, um, we get this, not only a brain map, or the brain map doesn't only show us which areas of the brain might be kind of over-functioning, under-functioning, but the computer software also gives us good prognostic um, information about is doing the subsequent neurofeedback training actually, you know, plausibly going to help those symptoms. Um, so say the person who has migraines, but their brain map doesn't look like a migraine pattern there, well, then maybe their migraines are, you know, quote unquote, just due to, you know, um, mold toxicity or just due to vitamin B2 deficiency or just due to magnesium deficiency or um, stress or whatever it is. But those stress would probably pop up as brainwave abnormality. So scratch that one. That's not the best uh, example. Um, so that's what the brain mapping um, part of the, uh, the, the conversation um, entails. So if it looks like the brain map, based on the brain map and based on the patient's symptoms, that there is something matching up there, then we could say, okay, let's do some neurofeedback to retrain those parts of the, or to train those parts of the brain to display the types of brain waves that we want to be seeing. So let's see how my next image looks here. Oh, right. So uh, just before we get to the neurofeedback, so just a picture from um, one of the uh, uh, brain mapping program. So there, there's different ways of kind of uh, um, uh, expressing the results with the images, but this would be an example of like, oh, we can see at the top there, like the top row of heads that's before neurofeedback. And generally we'd want the color scheme to be kind of in the white or green or very light blue range. So at the top, you can see like there's lots of red, which is not optimal. And then, you know, after doing the neurofeedback, then like, oh, look, we're seeing, you know, the color scheme looks a lot better. We're not seeing like as much of the the red um, in this particular case. So you can see these before and after. So generally um, do the brain map. If neurofeedback is indicated, you do the neurofeedback. So you do several sessions of that and then repeat the brain map and see how things are looking. And um, the areas that are being worked on, we should see improvement there. And a really cool thing with neurofeedback is even if you're working on um, say areas that are um, just say around the forehead, for example, like working on that prefrontal cortex um, due to the um, extreme intricacies of the brain, shall we say, a very, very complex system there. Um, even just regulating those areas can have an impact on other areas of the brain too. So the person who 
uh, you know, uh, these um, uh, brain maps belong to, um, they may have just been doing uh, neurofeedback around, you know, say the top of the head, for example, and yet it's you know, had a spillover effect throughout their entire brain. So it's it's pretty pretty cool stuff. All right. Um, so with neurofeedback itself, um, <clears throat> I guess I could have kept the other image up, but uh, with neurofeedback, um, if say we found that um, there was a you know, uh, not enough alpha waves in this area of the brain, and there were too many beta waves in that area of the brain, and that was um, plausibly connected to the um, chronic fatigue the person's having, the PTSD um, that uh, we know they have a history of, the anxiety and insomnia. Like there's, you know, say several symptoms linked to you know this kind of brainwave imbalance. We say, okay, well, we want to increase the alpha where it's too low and decrease the beta where it's too high. So how are we going to do that? Well, we do that through neurofeedback. So um, in this case, and again, probably should have picked a different image, but um, this person is, you know, sitting there watching this uh, video or game or whatever it is that's happening, like with a race car. And so we can't see it on the picture here because actually it looks like they're not actually hooked up to any electrodes at all. But um, the the little box on the table there um, with the uh, different electrodes coming out of it, um, a couple of those leads would be attached to a couple of um, different regions or uh, areas of the person's head. So if we wanted to work on the prefrontal cortex. We put those electrodes on the forehead at the right locations. If we wanted to work on the temporal lobes, we you know put those kind of above their ear um, in, a, in a certain area. So um, you know between two to four electrodes would be attached, not the full glorified shower cap, but you know two to four electrodes would be attached. Um, and then we tell the computer software, okay, in this example, we want you know more alpha over here and less beta over there. Wonderful. So then the computer software will be scanning those areas of the brain, and um, the person's either watching a video like the person in the picture here, um, or they'd be sitting with their eyes closed, listening to music. And if the brain is um, ex uh, exhibiting the brain waves that we want, so in this case, more alpha, less beta, then the video is going to play at full color. The music's going to play at normal volume and the brain's happy because it's getting little dopamine hits from that. Um, brains really like watching stuff, which is why people binge watch Netflix and brains really like music, which is why people like music um, amongst other reasons. Um, but uh, if the brain then starts displaying brain waves that it, that the, we don't want, so it's, you know, getting some theta in there, or it's getting some Delta in there, or it's, you know, there's too much beta, not less beta. It's basically not doing what the computer software wants it to do. Then the screen is going to dim. So the person can barely see the video. The music's going to um, be much harder to hear. Like it's going to really, the volume's going to go way down and the brain's going to say, wait a minute, I was watching that. I was listening to that. Um, and because it's not getting as dopamine hits anymore. So then the brain will start cycling through different brainwave patterns. And once it gets back to doing what we want it to do, the, you know, more alpha, less beta in this case, then the computer software is going to pick that up and say, like, oh, good brain's doing what we want it to do. The brightness of the screen goes up. The music starts playing at normal volume again. And the brain says, aha, I'm getting my dopamine again. Um, but then once it slips into its old pattern, then the screen dims, the music goes down and then the whole cycle repeats itself. And, and so basically over the course of time of doing neurofeedback, the brain is essentially coerced through this operant conditioning to start displaying the wavelengths that we want it to be displaying. And so once a person does enough neurofeedback training, then it's like, oh, now my brain just um, has less beta um, on average in general. It has more alpha in this region in general. And now my sleep is doing better. My anxiety is less. My migraines are better, um, whatever it is that we are working on. So that's the whole uh, method to the madness with the neurofeedback. As I said earlier, um, after doing a certain number of sessions, we do another brain map, see how things are looking. But that's, that's brain mapping and neurofeedback in a nutshell. 
So um, it's something that um, in my clinic, we're, if my prognostications are correct, probably by mid-August, we'll be um, up and running using this with patients. And then in the subsequent uh, months, I will post videos about it on social media. I'll mention in the news newsletter, maybe have another live um, Q&A slash presentation at some point and talk about it in more detail. But um, it's something I'm really excited about because I've been learning more and more about it and uh, just hearing about clinical uh, feedback from like now I'm part of these neurofeedback uh, brain mapping communities and, um, and clinician networks and whatnot. It's like, oh my gosh, I really wish that I had been offering this years and years ago. Um, but uh, I'll, we'll, we'll see how it uh, works out in my practice as well. So the very last topic I wanted to mention, and for folks who uh, listen to my social media content or um, whatnot, um, or, or access that on a semi-regular basis, but probably not surprised to hear me talking about cold plunging. Uh, I hope it's not too predictable. I'm just going to move the little icon here, which apparently I can only see and no one else can see, but it's in the way of the list that's going to come up here. So I've been very excited about cold plunging. I've been yapping about it for probably the better part of four months now on social media, um, pretty much at the point where like, if I don't get to do it every day, I'm a little bit disappointed um, because it's, yeah, it was, at first it was like, okay, I'm going to do it twice a week. Cause like, oh, I got to try this. And now it's like, oh, like where's, where's my cold exposure. So I'm getting a little bit addicted to it. Um, I have this picture up here because uh, in part, because the Huberman lab, <clears throat> excuse me, Huberman lab podcast is fantastic uh, if you're not familiar with it andrew huberman is a phd researcher from stanford university um my understanding is his labs mostly revolves around uh, human like performance like um uh, human biomechanics and things like that and like sports performance and exercise physiology but he talks about a lot of really fascinating stuff that uh, extends on his podcast um, that extends far beyond those topics a lot of kind of quote-unquote biohacking topics and things like that so this interview that he had with uh, Dr. I think it's pronounced Sjöberg, I can't remember for sure. Um, uh, it was put out maybe uh, within the last couple of months anyways. So it's it's a really great overview of cold plunging. And um, I really like Dr. Human for, Huberman for many reasons, um, not the least of which is that what he talks about is all very heavily evidence-based. So he really, unless it's talked about quite robustly in the research literature, he doesn't seem to really talk about it. So I, I, I like that because my left brain, my scientific brain is, is, uh, gravitates towards that. Um, and then also he practices what he preaches. So he, um, you know, he does cold plunging himself. He does, you know, he tries the exercise regimens that people talk to him about on his podcast and dietary things and supplements and this and that. So he's not just looking at it academically, but also, um, experiencing it too. So it's a great, um, interview and, uh, some of the just bullet point take home messages here from cold plunging in no particular order, um, are that, um, to my understanding from the research literature, um, seems like the optimal benefits from cold plunging are achieved, um, doing about a sum total of 11 minutes per week. So a lot of folks will do that as say, you know, three minutes of cold exposure, say four times in a week. Um, but one could do it differently. Um, another, um, take home message with cold plunging is that the goal of it is to feel cold. So one of the things him and Dr. Soberg talk about and other folks have talked about too, is like, Oh, like what's better? Like, is, should it be 10 degrees Celsius, which I think is uh, 50 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. Um, is that the water temperature the best or should it be 15 or should it be, you know, should we, should I need to be like breaking the ice on the top of my cold plunge because it needs to be as close to zero as possible. Um, to my understanding, the goal is to feel cold. And if we think back to that um, slide about the mitophagy, where stress ultimately leads to more mitophagy, um, it, it makes sense. Um, if a person is 
not acclimatized to cold exposure at all, something like even a 15 degree Celsius cold exposure might give them all the health benefits that someone who's acclimated to cold exposure might get at say five degrees um, Celsius water. So um, i.e., you know, very close to freezing. Um, so <clears throat> the goal is to feel cold. And it was great for me personally, when I heard that for the first time, because I was kind of a bit hung up on the numbers. Um, I, I'm going to make a video and I'll post it on my YouTube channel at some point. Um, just showing my home setup with my cold plunging. But um, the long story short there is that I, um, I'm not using my cold plunge in the uh, warmer months here, like in, you know, uh, late June, July, August, pretty hot in Nova Scotia. And um, it's just, I, I don't want to get a, didn't want to get a a water cooling machine, um, nor did I want to buy an ice machine and dump like I did the calculation. I need like 30 kilograms of ice or something like that for every cold plunge. I'm like, ah, I just I really don't want to spend the energy and environmental resources on that. Um, so I've just been um, settling for cold showers um, in the meantime. And it seems to be I seem to be getting by with that well enough. I haven't wasted away, uh, thankfully, not having my proper cold plunge. Um, but, uh, when I first started out, it was like, oh man, like it's getting warmer outside. Like my cold plunge is only 12 degrees today. Like, ah, you know, is that, is that going to be good enough? And, um, and really it was about like, did I feel cold? And the answer was no. So I started, you know, putting ice blocks in there and just, you know, kind of like moving around and, um, you know, kind of putting the ice on different parts of my body and whatnot. And like, it was really unpleasant, <laughs> but it made me very cold. And then, you know, I feel like, oh yeah, I'm getting those health benefits, even though the water itself maybe isn't, um, you know, quite where it should be. So the goal is, is to feel cold. And so whatever that means for a given person, um, as long as you're feeling cold, that's, that's the key. Um, and now I, now I embrace the cold. It's like, oh, right. Like I want to feel cold because I want to get those um, health benefits. Um, just a, another important point that uh, I don't remember if Dr. Humerman talks about this in this episode, but he definitely has in other um, uh, at other times where, um, to my understanding, it is important to wait at least four to six hours after exercising. Um, if I'm not sure, I should probably edit that, but um, wait four to six hours after exercising if the goal is to try to build muscle, which in the theme of today's uh, presentation, maybe that's something folks will want to be doing. Um, my understanding is if you do cold exposure prior or, um, uh, uh, with less than four to six hours post-exercise, then it can actually minimize some of the, um, expected kind of wanted local inflammation in those muscles. That's ultimately sending the signal that like, Hey, we need to build bigger muscles here. Um, so it could actually lead to a reduction in the muscle gains that your one's looking for. So it's like, Oh, I just, you know, hit the gym really hard. And then now I'm going to go into an ice bath. It might feel good afterwards. Um, but it's could have a negative impact on the outcomes of that exercise. So for me, um, when I do my resistance training, I, uh, if I'm going to do a cold plunge that day, I'll do it in the morning before I lift. Um, and I've done it where I do the cold plunge and I lift weights within, you know, 15 minutes of that. Cause timing wise, that's what worked out. And I, I, my understanding is that's totally fine, but just not wanting to do it after, after the fact, um, one of the benefits of, or I should say some of the benefits of cold plunging are that it increases, um, brown fat. So brown adipose tissue, which helps to make us more resilient to day-to-day -day cold that we um, ex experience. Um, so cold plunging can make it more comfortable and easier to uh, enjoy outdoor life in Canada and other Northern climes. Um, but it also increases our metabolism overall. Um, it's also been shown to boost dopamine notably. And speaking from experience, when I get out of my cold plunge um, or nowadays cold shower, um, I'm a generally happy, upbeat guy, but I just feel like that much better. My mood's better. When I miss my cold plunges, I'm like, ah, like I just feel like, um, you know, I'm still good, but it's like, ah, I just feel like I'm missing a little something. So, uh, it does seem to be good for dopamine and 
I'm thankfully not prone to, um, or, you know, a, a victim of like addiction or things like that. Um, but I feel like for folks who like, to my understanding, folks, like if they have, um, low dopamine um, propensities, like say folks with ADHD, or if there were like issues with addiction, whether it's to, you know, um, illicit substances, alcohol, food, gambling, whatever it happened to be, things that are going to boost dopamine naturally could be really helpful to kind of break some of those patterns. So some of my patients who have struggled with saying like, I, I know I should be following this type of diet, but man, like just, I'm really hooked on that sugar. For example, like cold plunging has been helpful for some of them to kind of break some of those habits or whatnot. Um, and then of course, most importantly, when you cold plunge, it just builds lots of street cred, which is why I do it. It's really not for the health benefits. I just want to be able to go around saying, oh yeah, I'm a cold plunger to see there's a question here in the chat or something in the chat. Uh, so one of the questions, so the question here is, um, does being outside long enough in the winter to make you feel cold suffice for giving you the same health benefits as plunging? Um, it's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> I feel like, uh, during this episode of the Huberman podcast with, um, uh, with Dr. Soberg, um, that like there were submitted questions that Dr. Huberman had accumulated ahead of time. And like a lot of them, he was like, so many people are asking like, does this count? Does this count? What's better? Like, is this better or that better? Is a shower better than a plunge? And can I just go outside in the snow and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, I, the, the take home message seemed to be, they have not studied all those different methods ind independently of one another. Um, so it's, it's, you know, very much based on putting together common sense and, and just opinion. Um, so we don't know for sure because it hasn't been specifically studied. Um, but the take home was just feel cold. Now, with that being said, you know, if a person's, you know, outside and they're like, oh, I'm just kind of underdressed and I'm kind of just gradually feeling like colder and colder, I'm stuck outside for two hours or something. And I'm just gradually getting chillier. I, I do wonder if that wouldn't be as impactful as like, I went from feeling normal to like, now I'm in a five degree Celsius cold plunge. I, I feel like the more like immediate short lived, like kind of shocking type cold, if you will, uh, would probably have more health benefits because it's more of like an immediate stressor that the body has to respond to as opposed to like a prolonged stress. Um, but I, I don't know for sure. So I think the official answer is feel cold and that's probably going to do the trick. But, um, uh, if it was like, Oh, can I just go out and like, like what I'm planning to do? Cause uh, my cold plunge is outside and I don't plan to bring it inside. So, uh, when the it's too cold and my water is frozen, um, I'm not going to throw like little lumps of hot coals in there or something like that to warm it up a bit. Uh, I plan to just go outside and like, you know, say, you know, my bathing suit and just, you know, make my neighbors think I'm even weirder than I am and just see me outside, you know, in the snow or whatever, just getting cold out there. Um, but I'll, you know, set my timer and whatever, and just yeah, get chilly for a few minutes. So I, I think that would be just as good. I don't think it has to include water. You are welcome. All right. So I was meaning to get a little timer. What time is it? Um, doo -doo -doo. Oh, there we go. Okay. Oh my gosh. Well, anyone who's, who's, participated in my uh, live recording of my overcoming chronic illness course is probably thinking like, I'm not surprised that he thought it would take 20 minutes. And here it is almost an hour later. Um, so thanks for your patience, folks. I uh, hope nobody had uh, yeah plans that uh, this, this interfered with. Um, but uh, that, that, that is the end of the presentation there. There were a couple of submitted questions, but um, I will open it up to any other questions from the audience here, just as I'm talking about, uh, or just mentioning some of the places you can access me online. Uh, so please feel free to plug those into the chat. Um, if you have a longer question you want to type out and just need a minute to type it out, just say questions coming and I, I won't uh, end the end the webinar uh, or the, um, the presentation prematurely. So just feel free to plug that into the chat. Um, 
if there are other questions and you're like, oh, I don't really want to, you know, ask this um, in this medium, but you want to ask otherwise, you can always um, email me if you're everyone on here live right now is, uh, I know, subscribes to, the, subscribes to my newsletter. So you can just reply to any newsletter and I'll, it'll go right to my uh, my email account and I'll answer the question on a, a subsequent social media post. Um, but uh, yeah, places where you can access me if you're interested in, you know, seeing my um, posts, I might put all the same stuff on all the different platforms. So if you follow me on Instagram and that's your uh, social media of choice. You can follow me anywhere else you want to, but it's it's all going to be the same content. Um, so uh, just my ins- uh, Facebook handles, East Coast Naturopathic Clinic. YouTube is Halifax Naturopathic Doctor. Instagram is dr.brianraid.nd. Um, website is eastcoastnaturopathic.com if you want to access our clinic and see what's on there. Um, the podcast is Overcoming Chronic Illness Podcast, which if you're listening to this on the podcast, you already know that, but if you're watching this on YouTube or whatnot, that's the name of the podcast. And then uh, just a little side note, I do have a, I just call it my pet project here. Um, I uh, started up a registered charity um, a couple of years ago and uh, the websites are listed there. One's a madelocalgroup.ca for um, Canadians and madelocalgroup.com for folks from the US. Um, of course, anybody from any country can access them if they want to. Um, but basically, um, it's a project where um, it's these websites are promoting uh, folks who are making products um, locally in Canada or in the United States. Um, I won't go on my soapbox here right now, but um, basically, to my understanding, when we are able to purchase goods that are manufactured locally, then it's good for the local economy. It creates jobs in the local economy. It um, it has reduced environmental impact if we're not shipping things from you know all across the countryside or all across the from inter intercontinentally and whatnot. Um, and there's some other benefits too, I think. So, um, anyways, if you're um, interested at all in buying things that are made locally, we've been adding listings for a couple of years now. And, um, but that being said, we keep finding more listings. So if you know of companies that manufacture goods in the U S or Canada, and you don't mind taking a minute to share those with us, um, feel free to send it along. Um, you could check the website first to see if we actually have them listed, but if not, that's okay. I have someone working for me adding listings. So if uh, she sees, Oh yeah, we've already got that one. That's okay. But, uh, just a little plug for that. Um, just a couple things in the chat here and okay. Yep, you're welcome. Um, uh, yep, yeah, and okay, looks like no questions, but uh, yeah, um, appreciate the appreciate the love. Uh, I'm glad folks enjoyed uh, the content today, and I think we are at time. So thanks so much to those of you who attended live, um, and I uh, hope that it, hope that it was useful for you. And uh, to those of you who are attending uh, or uh, accessing the information after the fact um, on social media or or via podcast platform, thanks for your attention and. I will leave it there for now.